Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 152, recorded on April 5th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And great to start with the news of Linux kernel 5.6. It's released, and it's packed full of goodies. The biggest one is WireGuard. Finally, it's in the kernel. We've been talking about WireGuard for years, and for good reason. It is a great VPN. We'll get to that in just a second. I'll first mention that the other thing I noticed that landed in this was initial support for USB 4, which was contributed by Intel, and is based on their Thunderbolt driver code. This also, for 32-bit users, has some good news. It's the first kernel that is ready to operate past the year 2038, if you're in 32-bit mode. There's good fixes in there for AMD and NVIDIA graphics stacks, as well as, and you're going to really appreciate this one, Joe, mainline support for the Amazon Echo smart speaker. I saw that, and I was very surprised by it, because who's running Linux on their Echo smart speaker? Nobody yet. But, I mean, picture a world where Mycroft has developed a little bit further, and now people could repurpose their first and second generation, or whatever it might be, generation Echo hardware, flash it with Linux, and install a Mycroft service on there, and now you got a Mycroft tube. That actually, I'd be down for that. Are they even flashable, though? Not yet. But they're getting there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how far you really would want to take this thing yet, because eventually you also have to get the Wi-Fi working, and they don't have full microphone array support at this point. They have like a single mic, and to make this thing really effective, you want the microphone array. I would say it's, a, it's at least a decent idea, and I'm also always a fan of just getting Linux on all of the things. If it doesn't require a lot of kernel bloat, if it isn't a massive amount of effort, if it's not some crazy architecture they have to maintain forever now... I'm kind of a fan of going for it. Yeah, I suppose so. Even if it's not Mycroft you're running on it, maybe you could use it with Home Assistant or something like that if it's running its own proper Linux OS. But you really did mention the big story. The lead for kernel 5.6 is the death of OpenVPN. <laughs> I kid, but really WireGuard is so great. And I'm a big fan. Jason Donfield has created something that is remarkable. Version 1.0 is stable. It has been stable for a while, but even more so, it's been recently reviewed professionally to check to see if there's anything, um, you know, misconfigured or improperly developed or designed. And uh, the lead developer, Jason Donfield, commissioned that um, code base audit in anticipation of it being included in 5.6. In fact, he writes, I've been neurotic about having the 5.6 kernel ship without any showstopper bugs. WireGuard has been stable for a long time now, but that doesn't make me any less nervous about the real deal in 5.6. To that end, I've been doing code reviews and having discussions, and we've also had a security firm audit the code. The audit didn't turn up any vulnerabilities, but they did make a good defense in-depth suggestion. Jim Salter on Ars Technica has a really good write-up of the new release, and I will also link in his introduction guide if... You've heard us talk about WireGuard. You haven't wrapped your head around it yet. Jim's got a good piece on that, too. Well, if you're crazy enough to run an Arch server, then you're going to be able to take advantage of this, and no doubt you will be sorting that out with Wes soon. But realistically, is anyone going to be able to use this kernel in an enterprise distro anytime soon? There is that aspect of it. Some great new feature hits the mainline Linux kernel, but then it's really a wait around and see how long it takes until it's implemented at the distro level. That is true with the exception of Ubuntu 20.04. I believe Canonical released a statement saying that they would backport WireGuard to the 5.4 kernel they're using. 
And to that end, there is a WireGuard-Linux-Compact code branch, which will continue to be maintained so that the WireGuard kernel module can still be deployed to older kernels. So it is still retrofitable, and it's easily solvable with a DKMS-style solution. But as you know, it takes a while to go the DKMS route. Every update is quite a painfully long experience. Yeah, that's why it will be great to just have it baked in upstream. It will take a little bit for the mainline distros to get it, but certain areas will get it soon. And I think that the big part that we'll, we'll start to see now that it's actually in the kernel is cool projects built around it. There's already a whole bunch that are getting created now, but you'll start to see a bunch of more GUIs that can sit on top of the WireGuard tools. And I would hope integration with a lot of edge products, like your PF senses and things like that out there. Plug for OpenSense, by the way. But with 5.6 released, that means that 5.7 is now in the works, and something coming to that is going to be the XFAT driver. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the specially Samsung-developed XFAT file system driver that's landing in kernel 5.7. Now, if you recall, there was sort of a temporary read-only kind of sketch version that was added in Linux 5.4. That's going to be swapped out now. So by the time I'm using Zubuntu 22.04 in about three years, it means I'll be able to plug my XFAT formatted SD cards in and not have to install XFAT Utils and XFAT Fuse. Boy, future Joe's just going to love that. When you put it that way, it's almost silly. (laughs) (laughs) These things take a while, but... I'm sure if you've got a Manjaro machine, it'll be a lot sooner than that. Yeah. Or you could always run, you could go uh, wild and uh, just run one of them interim releases, you know. Throw caution to the wind, Joe. No, I I would not do that, I'm afraid. I might test them, but I'm far too uh, sensible for that. Meanwhile, you're talking to a guy who's running the 2004 dailies right now. (laughs) And I'm I'm trying out the new beta for Fedora as well in a a VM because, you know, why not? (laughs) Well, if you want to check out a beta of Ubuntu Touch, now you can buy a phone with it pre-installed. Not just any phone, a Pine Phone, a UbiPorts Community Edition. The pre-orders are open right now. It's a Pine Phone as you know it, but this one will not only come pre-loaded with an Ubuntu Touch image, but also a special limited edition Ubuntu Touch back, which is actually kind of cool. They've been working on this port, they say, in the announcement for essentially 18 months, from the first leggy builds to actually something semi-usable. I don't know if it's quite in the daily driver category yet, but it's improving very quick. And of course, with the Pine Phone, you could run anything you could load on there. So this would just be one of the many options you'd have, and hopefully one of the better ones. So this is available for $150 plus shipping, and also potentially import charges and taxes and things. So watch out for that. But of that $150, $10 will be going to the UbiPorts Foundation, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and my understanding is is there's no reason if I have a Braveheart Edition phone like the one I have here, uh, I could flash it with UbiPorts Ubuntu Touch, and it would work fine, right? There's no incompatibilities there? No, this is a slightly revved version. The, the motherboard's slightly different, and there's a few small improvements, but as far as I understand it, they are just the same phone. So you can just download uh, an Ubuntu Touch image, uh, flash it on an SD card, and boot it up, and you'll have more or less the same experience. I want to see more distributions available for phones like this, especially as hardware like the Pine Phone becomes available. I do want to set expectations. You know, it's not perfect. Like I said, it's not daily driver yet. And I think the builds that will be released on the phone hardware likely won't have camera support, but I think that's not too far away. I think they have a camera fix coming soon from what I've seen on Twitter. 
So I'd say keep your expectations set accordingly, but it's a great device to play around with, and 150 bucks for something like this is remarkable. And mine, you know, my Braveheart Edition, which is an early build, admittedly, feels really solid in the hand. Feels like a real device. Yeah, it is a real phone. It's a proper device. But it's not the only phone that you'll be able to get Ubuntu Touch pre-installed on, at least at some point in the future. Yeah, I was sort of buried in all the other news, but they did announce a partnership with the German phone startup Fala. They write on their blog, they're joining forces as a sponsor and will have a place on the advisory board. They expect that Ubuntu Touch will be available as a pre-installed option on the new Fala phone. How about that? Just when you thought the world had moved on and we were going to be locked into Android and iOS forever. Projects like the Pine Phone come along and do what purism never could. And projects like UbiPorts continue to prove that if they just keep working at it over time, they get it better and better. And the hardware is coming to a certain point and the software is coming to a certain point and they are meeting up at this juncture. And it's, it's remarkable to actually see it still continue on. I think it's still in the realm of hobbyists. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There should be. There should be hobbyist devices. These mobile devices are an absolutely critical part of the computing ecosystem. And I think it's really important that we have an option for hobbyists because that's how we learn and push the boundaries. Yeah, I think that it's going to be a while, if ever, before these kind of OSs and phones replace people's main phones. But I think there are some people who can get by with a, a relatively limited feature set and then there are other people who will have this as a second phone to play around with and help improve. I think that's the key thing here, that we're still in this testing phase. This is not about competing with Android and iOS necessarily. It's about finding a niche that is separate from those two, which is the same kind of niche where custom ROMs like Lineage sit. They're going all the way to 17.1, and that's actually part of the big news. Lineage OS 17.1 based on Android 10, is now officially available. It seems AOSP threw them a few curveballs throughout the development of 17.1. Yeah, and this isn't available for all of the officially supported phones yet, although it is available for mine, but I haven't flushed it yet because that takes half a day at least of setting everything back up again. But yeah, this was a slightly longer development cycle for them. And the reason that it's 17.1 is because they had started work on 17.0, but then they rebased on the Google Pixel 4 branch of Android on source project. And so they decided that it made sense to rev it to 17.1. This release also is making the switch to lineage recovery as a de facto solution for actually installing the OS. And they've also introduced Permissions Hub, which conflicted with privacy guards, so that has had to be dropped. And also, instead of offering official super user binaries that you could flash, now if you want root, you have to go the Magisk route. Now, I'm not a lineage user, Joe, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding is there's essentially a downside that you can still root, but you can't really hide the fact that you're rooted in this new system. Yeah, it's kind of hit and miss with Magisk, depending on the device, as to whether you can hide the fact that you're rooted and that your bootloader is unlocked. But you could never do that with the old routing method anyway. It was just a lot simpler. It was just instead of having to interact with Magisk, you just flashed this root binary, and if you didn't care about hiding it, then it was just simpler, and that's what I always did. So now I'm going to have to use Magisk, which I'm not particularly bothered about, but it's just a bit of difference. You know I don't like change. I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I guess I think about Lineage OS and I think, man, it's it's awesome that it's going so strong and that they took the time to 
integrate security fixes and do proper rebasing so that when they did ship, it was it was in a really good state. But I also still feel like I've been watching the walls close in on the custom ROM community for years, and it just seems like it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And it's it's very much the boiling frog type approach. It doesn't seem to be that they're startling anyone very fast, but as hardware changes and security requirements ramp up and Google makes architecture changes to Android and then security changes that are paired with hardware features, it to me just seems like the walls are getting pretty tight now. The oxygen, as they say, is almost out of the room. And I can't think of another metaphor I could throw in there, but I think you get where I'm going. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right, though. I think that in another five, 10 years, maybe, things like Lineage won't be possible on most phones. I think that it'll still probably be around for legacy devices that are out of support. But the newer phones that come along, well, they're just getting more and more locked down, as you say. And I don't think that that is Google and OEMs necessarily wanting to make the custom ROM scene go away. It's just them not caring about it and just caring more about these security features, which ultimately close down the platform even more, which is sad. I mean, it's good that we've got projects like the Pine phone, which are open, but I mean, that's not exactly flagship hardware. It's a $150 phone. It's low end. And I think you're right that ultimately you're going to either have the hobbyist phones or you just have to use whatever ROM it comes with, which is sad. It's sad. It's always been a little bit like Linux, hasn't it? In that you can buy a PC you know, a laptop or whatever, and just install whatever distro you want on it. Whereas with mobile hardware, with iPhones, it's always been the case. But with Android phones, at least some of them, like the Nexus phones, whatever, were fully supported by these ROMs. And Google made it easy for projects like Lineage to to get their ROMs going on there. Whereas now, that seems to be a thing of the past. That's the line of thinking I had with this as well. And I also thought it just sort of underscores the importance of things like the Pine Phone. It seems, though, like the Pine Phone's developing at a rate faster than I expected, and the software around it is developing at a rate faster than I expected. And maybe I came at it a little cynical at this point because I've seen these phone attempts so many times now. But it does give me hope that that Lineage, maybe, you know, Lineage on that thing, um, Ubuntu Touch on there, Manjaro Mobile Edition on there. I know that there's even conversations around the Fedora project to get parts of Fedora working on the Pine Phone. Like, it's happening, and it's happening faster than I expected. Because really, we're only, like, 1.5 hardware iterations into the Pine Phone right now. Yeah, you would assume that there will be newer, more powerful versions in the future, because it looks like it's being relatively successful within the niche that we're talking about here. So I'm really hoping that is going to be something that continues. Because I think if you're a hardware company like Pine64 are, that just puts their hands up and says, you know, we're not here to make software. We're not going to pay a whole team of developers, but we're going to help you. We're going to work with you, the community, to make these ROMs happen. That seems to be the right approach to it, to me. The market seems to have shown us this approach. I mean, it's not it's not directly comparable, but it seems similar to the way PC manufacturers over the years operated. They didn't create Windows, or they didn't create the Linux distro they installed on there typically. Traditionally, they would create hardware, they'd work with Microsoft to create drivers, and then they would ship that and support that. And they would focus on the hardware, and Microsoft would focus on the software. 
those lines, of course, have all been blurred now because Microsoft has hardware and there's Linux distros that are created by the OEMs directly. And, you know, all, it's, all, it's all blurred now. But it does seem to have been a model that was successful for a long time and made guys like Michael Dell very rich. And there's a, still a huge market in there, in that business model. And I, I, I could see it applying to the Pine Phone, especially if the enthusiast market continues to grow and operating systems like Lineage Imagine a scenario, Joe. Imagine Lineage having top performance, like best hardware support, best apps. You could put a Lineage image on the Pine phone and it just rocked everything. I, I, I would do that. I would do that in a heartbeat. And I would probably be the first time I became a regular user of Lineage OS. Not, not because I have any problem against it. It's just if I spend a lot of money on a $1,000 Android device, I want it to be fully supported, and I'm going to run the software they put on there because it better well damn be good. Yeah, I know what you mean. My installation, Lineage 16, on my OnePlus 3T is pretty broken right now um, to the point where often when I get a notification, I swipe down, and then I click on it, say it's a Telegram message, and then I just get a black screen, and uh, I have to then kill telegram or whatever and restart the app to get it it's in a terrible state and you know that's because i've done all sorts to it probably and that's why when i do this 17.1 update i'm just going to do wipe and completely start again and hopefully not have these problems and yeah lineage in my experience is a little bit buggy and according to popey he tried lineage on the 3t and said it was slower than the official rom but i've never tried the official rom the first thing i did was wipe it when i got it so I don't know, but I I do see what you mean. As for lineage on the Pine phone, there's no reason why it couldn't happen, but as far as I know, there are no Android ROMs available because the point of the project was that it was proper GNU slash Linux operating systems. So I don't think there's been a huge push to put Android on it. I'd love to check it out. So if anyone does know of an Android ROM that I can flash on the Pine phone, then do let me know. But I think that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, fair enough. It makes sense. But I think... If something like the PinePhone is successful, I'd like to be able to run any OS I want on there. And because the hardware is reasonable and documented and easy for projects to get their hands on, it seems like it could actually happen. And maybe the big news out of Huawei this week accelerates some of this. Yeah, Huawei have joined the Open Invention Network, which is essentially an organization that lets companies join and cross-license their patents royalty-free. Patents, of course, to do with the Linux system, whatever that exactly means. Yeah, the definition, which is something that changes from time to time. It was actually adjusted when Microsoft joined back in October of 2018. That's how long ago that was. No, that was uh, only a couple of months ago, wasn't it? No, no, no. I thought so too. In fact, I wasn't even sure if it was this year or if it was maybe late last year. Looked it up and Nat Friedman announced it in October of 2018. Pretty wild. Now, Huawei joining is a big deal because... Not only do they agree to cross-license their patents, but they also agree that they won't assert any patent infringement against each other. And Huawei has a huge portfolio, as you might imagine. The Open Invention Network, OIN's CEO, told the Register in an interview that he was, quote, delighted. It's probably one of the top five companies that we've been chasing for quite some time. I think my first conversations with Huawei were nine years ago. Back then, they weren't doing that much in open source, but in the last six and a half years, they've become very committed to open source and a very active member of the board of the Linux Foundation. They go on to say, Joe, as far as equipment suppliers go, Huawei has been a model. Now, I'm just blown away by this because of the political situation where companies in the U.S. are not permitted to work with Huawei, 
mean, this sort of seems like a backdoor way to do it. Yeah, because with Huawei's Android phones, they're not allowed to ship any of the Google proprietary stuff, but they are allowed to base it on Android open source. So it kind of makes sense that they want to get more heavily involved in the open source side of things, because even from a PR point of view, it's a good move. And there'll probably be practical benefits as well. We also know they're making big investments in their Harmony OS and in their IoT arm. So that will be really interesting. Plus, they're a big arm shop. And they have very sophisticated camera assemblies. All of this, it could have very big implications. And you also wonder if there's some patent suits now that are going to get upended, perhaps canceled. Yeah, you have to wonder what's going to happen with the Verizon suit that they filed. Maybe they might back out of that. The OIN CEO added uh, in their quote, it's important that open source software cuts across geopolitical boundaries. I kind of agree. and I, I like that they, they weren't... Uh, I don't know if the right word is to say like scared out of doing this, but that they were brave enough to go forward even given the political situation because it's undoubtedly a massive contribution. Yeah, and you never know. Maybe the likes of Amazon and Samsung might join as well. It's certainly what the OIN wants. They worry about giant corporations like Samsung and Amazon joining their network. I worry about possibly never receiving my Atari VCS console. This has been quite the saga, hasn't it? How long ago was it that you backed this thing? I was wondering. I was going to look it up. I think, I, I'm not positive, but I think it was 227 years ago. <laughs> I think it was, what, uh, summer of 2018, and it was supposed to ship in summer of 2019. And I don't know about you, but it's getting pretty warm in London. It feels like summer 2020 to me, and you still don't have it. I'm starting to wonder if I'll, if I'll ever get it. The Xbox co-creator, Rob Wyatt, we've talked about him before and his company, Tin Giant, is now suing Atari because he says that they owe him more than $261,000. Yeah, he's alleging breach of contract and defamation from them saying that he never did the work properly and that's why they didn't pay him. So even if Atari wins this, it's going to probably take quite a long time and cost quite a lot of money. And so you assume that's going to delay things a little bit. They do say that they've got a number of them ready to go, but obviously all of the uh, supply chain problems that we've seen are slowing it down. But it just seems to be a lot of excuses from them. Yeah, like, okay, so they did just post an update on their Medium blog before all this lawsuit stuff kind of erupted on March 19th. And it reads right here at the top, we have confirmed delivery of enough parts by the end of March to build our first 500 Atari VCS production units. A good portion of those first Atari VCS units are earmarked as dev kits for more developers. We believe it would be unfair to use the balance to fulfill only a small number of Indiegogo orders. So Atari's plan is to ship all backers to, uh, to all backers at the same time when enough VCS units and peripherals are available. But there's no timing on that because, you know, coronavirus. Yeah, which is a bit strange. Surely you can just look at who was the first to back the project and send them their console. Because isn't that the whole point of crowdfunding, to get in early and get it before anyone else? Whenever a crowdfunder has a hardware delay and they're not being upfront and honest, <clears throat> there is usually language in here that is a little bit suspicious. When they write, we believe it would be unfair to use the balance to fulfill only a small number of Indiegogo orders. So Tari's plan is to A, wait for an arbitrary date, for B, an arbitrary number of both VCS units and all of the peripherals become available. 
Those are three different milestones in one sentence that they cannot commit to any times on. And this is such a typical weasel, community-backed, community-funded type update where they weasel in the words there a little bit and they make it sound like they're doing the best thing for their backers. We don't want to be unfair, so we're not going to ship to anybody. Really, after all this time, you're not desperate to have people making YouTube videos and posting pictures of it on Reddit and Twitter saying, it's alive, it's really coming. That wouldn't directly benefit everything you're doing to have some hype built and have actual units out in the field. Really? I'm not buying that. Well, the generous reading of it would be that it's a bad business decision to hang on to those finished consoles and not ship them. A more cynical person might uh, question the veracity of their claim that they have those units. Yes, yes. I'm now because you know I've spent my hard-earned money on this. I'm no, I'm getting in the cynical category. And with Rob Wyatt's having to sue them, I mean, the guy's the co-creator of the Xbox, and these units, if they're getting so close to ship, they must have gotten that work done somehow. Did somebody else do that work? What's the story there? Why isn't Atari being upfront about that? Just saying it just doesn't pass the smell test anymore. Yeah. And this was going to be this cool Linux-based console that looks like the old Atari and even have the, the joystick controller and everything. Uh, but this, this dream seems to be fading See, I think it's still going to ship. It'll just be horribly underwhelming, poorly executed, and die off in the first generation. And it'll be, of course, super late. But it'll ship, and I'll have the hardware. And if nothing else, maybe I can just put desktop Linux on it. <laughs> maybe. Who knows what route they're going to go. They were originally going to make it quite securely locked down so you could boot a live Linux on it, but it seems that the plans have changed so much that it'll end up being just a regular x86 box with a skinned version of Ubuntu probably that hopefully you'll be able to replace with just regular Ubuntu with Cordy or something. Actually, be pretty great. That'd be pretty nice if I could make a media center box. It's a nice looking rig, you know? And the guy's already spent the money for it, Joe, so why not? <laughs> that, it's not like I'm making a bad purchase now. I already did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just think what you could have done. Just imagine if you'd invested that money in Bitcoin back then, oh. how much it would be worth now. Oh, that stings. Why? Why you gotta? Why you gotta say that? What? Uh, well, whatever happens, and whatever happens in the world of Linux and open source, we'll cover right here on the show. Check out linuxactionnews.com/slash/subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes, and linuxactionnews.com/slash/contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislass.com, and you can find me at joelrest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Thank you.